Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I thought today Citigroup had a day off. I thought Mike Corbett get everyone the day, the day off, but apparently not. not. Because Tobias Lefkowitz is with us of City, the chief U.S. equity strategist. Tobias, what happened? Did you not get Friday off? Uh, I'm taking a different Friday off. So we You're have taking a different Friday off. Well, that's I good. unfortunately scheduled a bunch of things to work today, even though uh, Mr. Corbett was kind enough. It, I already committed <laughs> to things, so, including getting up early for you guys. <laughs> well, Tobias, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Would it be fair to say that you've been a little bit more skeptical of what underpins this rally in the last month or so? Well, I, I'm, I'm more skeptical about the continuation of the rally. I don't know what kind of has underpinned this rally. It's been, uh, you know, the exiting of the great lockdown. It is the better news on the healthcare front and certainly stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, that started kind of in the latter part of March into April. So all those things have combined. And then there's been what I call this overlay, uh, not FOMO, not fear of missing out, but a behavioral overlay of what I call FOMU, fear of meaningfully underperforming. So as the market has turned, investors have felt compelled to deploy cash and be part of this because, you know, to quote the New York Lotto, if you're not in it, you can't win it. Um, so, so I think a lot of investors have been kind of chasing the tape, fear of being left behind, and potentially that's career risk. Yeah, it's career risk. I, I love how you put that, Tobias, and it's just so, so important. It's May, and I guess we got to get to December. How far out are people expecting? You know, the academic rule is six months. I don't buy it for a minute. How mm-hmm. far out is he expecting right now? So a lot of people are talking about 2021 earnings and even 2022 earnings. How long does it take for us to get back to where we were in 2019? Um, and, and I would argue that we're probably pricing May of 2021 at this point. Uh, we do think the market can go up to about 3160 on the S&P by middle of next year. So we're, we're almost there, if you want to think of it in those terms, 5 6% away. Um, but we've done it really, really early. And again, I, you yeah. know, I, I do think there's risk here. It's a bumpier road to get to that mid-2021 target. Well, I, I get that. You know, you had a 30% whatever bounce off the March lows. So yeah, from here, it's it's more challenging. But the great challenge to me is, is you've got to move forward looking out there, but being buffeted by the news. How do you withstand the volatility in day-to-day shocks as you look out to May of 2021? Look, so I think from a portfolio perspective, people are, are, will, will think about barbelling it. Um, they'll take a little bit more risk on one side, a little bit more defensiveness on the other side to, to make sure that they've got that almost inherent portfolio protection. Um, but net-net, um, we are at the mercy of news developments. Are we going to have uh, you know, significant outbreaks by exiting the lockdown? Are we going to have um, potentially good or not so good news on, on treatments and vaccines down the road. These are very, very difficult for investors to kind of get their arms around. Um, you know, the, the the biggest issue for us probably is going to be how do we get everybody back to work and do we see an increase in what I would call populism and protectionism in order for local citizenry to get jobs? Because remember, politicians are not elected by global citizenry. They're elected by their domestic populations and they're going to have to respond to that. We've got a big election coming up in November. November and uh, you know it's not that easy to just say hey well you know we're we're for free trade today even though maybe that's a better capitalist perspective 
um, it might mean that we're importing things as opposed to building them in here. And, and I think that's not going to be the rhetoric on either side of the political uh, aisle. I think both sides are going to be looking towards that job creation element. Uncertainty is definitely the hallmark of 2020. And I'm just wondering how hard it is for you to come up with a recommendation for investors, given the fact that most companies have withdrawn guidance and even China has withdrawn guidance. No one can have any kind of uh, foresight here. How is it for you? So, look, uh, I think it's a great point, but I've actually asked that question to some of our institutional investors, clients, and asking them, you know, are you pleased, disappointed, you know, management should be providing their best guess at the very least, um, you know, with and give, you know, caveats. This is our base case scenario of 50%. This is our, you know, dramatically bad scenario of 10%, whatever it might be. Wouldn't you want them to provide that? And really, it's an interesting mix of responses from from that investor group and in that some of them are saying, look, I want to buy good businesses um, that kind of are looking out two, three years, not two, three months. So I don't really care that they're not telling me the second quarter guidance because nobody really can predict how bad it could be. Um, but are you doing the right things for the, you know, for the business over a, a longer time frame? Um, that's in some of the people. And the others, one, the others have told me, you know, it's not like we really listen to the guidance anyway. We, we use it as a benchmark. But, you know, management teams also kind of screw up every once in a while. Well, let's talk about the former group and what they've told you about their willingness to buy cyclicality in the areas of the market that still have serious valuation damage that hasn't really recovered. I'm thinking of the financials in America and elsewhere. Tobias, what are those conversations like at the moment? Look, they'd rather be um, in companies that have what you might say bulletproof balance sheets, secular growth characteristics, free cash flow, because that's called, quote, unquote, the quality trade, right? Um, that's one of the places that everybody's hiding out. And the problem is there's, there's so many people crowded into that space, uh, including institutional investors domestically, foreign investors who've, who've had to come to the U.S. in many respects to do this, um, similar to back in 1999-2000 when they were buying the dot-coms because it was the only place that they regularly could do it that wasn't available in any great uh, number of stocks in Europe, for instance. So we've seen that as well. And then there's the, the individual investor, the retail investor, that probably is going into some more speculative areas as well that may not be the right investments, but they're kind of exciting and they're, they they rise rapidly and people feel good near term um, and probably are taking a bit too, more, too, too great a risk for their portfolio. So that's been the crowded trade. If you believe that the cycle is going to be better over the next six months, which we think it will be if you go just from standstill economy to doing something, it's an improvement. Uh, the problem is, you know, what level of improvement and, and there's there's a great re- series of reasons to think the cadence of that recovery is going to be less than thrilling. Um, but if you do believe there's a turn, then you probably should be looking at some of these cyclicals. Um, it's a little early for it, probably. You're going to need to see PMIs turn. They usually lead cyclicals by about three months. Um, but areas like financials, like even the chip stocks, probably make some sense uh, to, to be looking at because they're pricing in a lot of bad news as opposed to, again, these crowded, call them large cap tech names, but they're not necessarily all tech, um, that yeah. uh, seems are not priced. Not, I wouldn't say they're priced for perfection, but they're certainly not priced for bad news. Tobias, great to catch up with you. Tobias Lefkovich of City. Tobias, thanks for showing up today and on time as well. Who cares that China's abandoned its growth target? Everybody expected it. Front and center yeah. is the tension yeah. between the United States and China. And once again, things flaring up in Hong Kong once more. 
Leading our coverage in Hong Kong has been Yvonne Mann, and there have been many coverages in Hong Kong, of course, away from this immediate issue, of course, the protests of months ago, and then really a first-mover pandemic response that we have followed on in America. Yvonne Mann joins us right now. Yvonne, what will happen into your Saturday and into your Sunday? Do you expect thousands in the street? Well, Tom, we're already hearing tonight a lot of uh, political activists are out in the streets. They're handing out pamphlets, educating people about this national security law. And then there have been plans the next couple of days to hit the streets once again. So here we go again. We seem to be setting the stage for another repeat of last year. And this is a signal that what we got from Beijing, the NPC, that perhaps the mainland's patience is running thin. They're frustrated by the months of unrest that has hurt the economy. They're frustrated by lawmakers who have failed to get through this legislation that has basically stalled this bill since 2003. So the new strategy now is to bypass the legislative council, bypass the legislative process altogether, and they're still figuring out the mechanics of how this is all going to work. But you already hear the pro-democracy side saying this is the end of Hong Kong. The status of Hong Kong as an international city will be gone very soon, and this move by Beijing threatens the one country, two systems framework. China, though, continues to defend this law, saying it's absolutely necessary, and this is something other countries already have seek to have. Equity markets shaking this off in the United States. Futures turn positive in America, but they certainly weren't shaking it off on a Hang Seng. If on my question as follows, and I think the answer might be obvious, does China actually value the special trading status that Hong Kong has? Well, I think what we're tra- seeing here, Jonathan, is that President Xi Jinping has been threatened, not just with the rising unemployment that we're seeing in the mainland from the COVID-19 outbreak, but there's also this potential big loss that China could see in in the Hong Kong legislative elections that are set to happen in September. So the Communist Party now is deciding that perhaps they have more to gain by actively acting decisively to try to put down these threats for now. And they're basically sending a message to President Trump that we can do whatever we want with Hong Kong. We're not scared of the consequences. And uh, this is a, a, a domestic issue, essentially. So uh, at this point, you know, we heard from President Trump saying that they're going to address this issue very strongly. They threatened to renege on the phase one trade deal. But withdrawing that Hong Kong special status, we were speaking to experts saying if they do so, this actually punishes Hong Kong more so than China, because essentially you're putting the city into the hands of the mainland because you're just accelerating what their plan has been all along is to absorb Hong Kong and make it another southern city in the mainland. Yvonne, can you just uh, elaborate a little bit more the idea that Beijing feels like the U.S. perhaps won't be able to respond in full, will be distracted by the economic backdrop, or already has shown that they are reluctant to do more? Is that the reason for the timing as to why now? I think... The, the reason why now is, is two fronts. Yes, perhaps they're saying we, we don't really care about the consequences. We, perhaps we, we dare the U.S. to kind of uh, clap back on what we're doing right now. But it's also, I think, also a domestic issue because they're seeing that there are more benefits to actually stemming this unrest right now. And, of course, we have seen this unrest decimate the economy for, for months now that they need to put an end to this. So you do see those on the pro-government side saying perhaps this is encouraging news that we do need to finally put an end to the, the, the protest. Uh, and President Xi is, is trying to show a bit of strength here in the midst of, of what he's been dealing with with the U.S. 
the the back and forth about pointing fingers and blame on who who is to blame for this, the start of this virus, also with its, the trade tensions as well. So I think this is the, the platform of NPC to really show that strength. What will the, how will that strength be imputed to Hong Kong in the coming days? I mean, do they show up with military on every corner? I don't see that, Yvonne. But what's the next step to show force or power of Beijing on the streets of Hong Kong? Oh, we haven't seen that yet, uh, as you said, Tom. Uh, but this isn't just about the national security law uh, that we just heard from, from Beijing. Uh, there's also a lot of issues that the Hong Kong is also facing as well, especially with this national anthem bill, which the chief executive, Carrie Lam, has been pushing for this legislation to go through. This basically criminalizes anyone that makes fun or, or threatens the, the national anthem in China. So these are the, the reasons why... People are telling, or at least the pro-democracy side is telling demonstrators to hit the streets once again. And now that this pandemic in Hong Kong, the outbreak has stabilized quite substantially, I think people are feeling a little bit more comfortable of hitting the streets once again. We've already seen some social unrest, some gatherings in malls in the last couple of weeks or so. So we haven't seen any response from Beijing yet in terms of action on the streets per se. But we've seen that fear bubbling once again. I mean, we, we saw when it came to VPN downloads, we saw that spike among Hong Kong residents in the last 24 hours or so. And then even Google searches for migration, that shot up in Hong Kong on news of this security law. Yvonne, I can only imagine what it's been like to live in Hong Kong over the last year. It just must be so yeah. tense constantly over several issues. Yvonne, my thoughts are with you, truly. Yvonne Mann from Hong Kong on the latest. She's Senior Vice President, Yield Curve Control for TD Securities. Priya Misra joins us right now. Priya, in your textbooks, was there yield curve control? There wasn't. There wasn't an unprecedented shock in uh, you know, economic activity either. But I think what's very clear is that this is an aggressive, creative central bank. Uh, I, I would say globally, but certainly with, with the Fed. That's looking at other tools. And so they've addressed yield curve control. I think uh, Brainerd has brought it up in the past. And then we heard from uh, Vice Chair Clarida as well. I think they might have no option but to go into yield curve control. But I think the market's not testing them right now. So I don't see it imminently. But by year end, if the market continues to price in hikes in four or five years, I wouldn't be surprised that they actually just slam the yield curve down. And particularly as, as uh, supply is going to pick up with, I guess, additional rounds of stimulus. I guess, Priya, in some ways they already have. I mean, yesterday at 4.30 p.m. Wall Street time, the Fed released their balance sheet assets, which have climbed beyond $7 trillion, just to give you a sense, up from $3.8 trillion back last year. I'm trying to understand how they're going to use their balance sheet to suppress treasury yields while also engaging in an accelerating corporate debt ETF purchase program. I mean, is the emphasis going to be on treasuries? Are they going to emphasize expanding into new assets? So I I think they're absolutely going to uh, use all of those facilities and maybe more uh, 13-3 facilities um, to sort of, you know, keep uh, credit going. But I think they'll have no choice but to buy a lot of treasuries as well. Because even if you think that they do yield curve control, they can pin the front end. But to try and look at the 10-year and the 30-year, that pinning is not that strong. So I think they'll have to buy uh, treasuries. We're actually expecting that they'll be buying all the way up until the end of 2021, 
we have the balance sheet growing to a max of 12 trillion by the end of next year which we, which is you know making some assumption about additional fiscal stimulus i think uh, they might be able to lower the amount of treasuries they're buying in the front end the 0 to 5 year because if they've told you they're not hiking rates well then i'm happy to hold the 5 year Anything beyond that, I think they are going to be the marginal buyer of, of treasuries out there. Well, Priya, you've nailed it. This is two very, very different policy decisions. If they just turn around and offer Canada-based guidance and say the policy rate remains X for Y amount of years, then the front end is already there. And there's actually not much QE they might have to do to support that whole policy. That's just a, su- that's just a supplement to Canada-based guidance, which is something Vice Chair Clarida talked about yesterday. But if they go out to the 10-year, if they do what Japan has done, for me, that's a game changer in the Treasury market. That requires far more heavy lifting, a lot more work on behalf of the Federal Reserve. Now, are you saying you expect the former to happen or do you expect the latter to happen? I expect the former. So I think the yield curve control will be maybe three, I think, max five years. I think when they talk about forward guidance, the impact is really in the zero to five year sector. So they could do yield curve control all the way out to the five year. I agree with you. I think going out the curve in the treasury market, I mean, the BOJ did this. Uh, they did hold a very large amount of JGBs, but the U.S. Treasury market is not the JGB market. So yeah. I don't think they take the step that far into yield curve control at the tenure, but they'll need to continue to do QE. I think all they can do is through yield curve control, lower the amount of buying in the front end. But I think they'll have to be involved in the yeah. long end, especially as, as the Treasury is issuing a lot of long end bonds. Folks, what Priya Misra just said there is so, so, so important. You said, Priya, this is not the Japanese bond market. Now, each bond market's different. What is distinctive about the American full faith and credit market that doesn't give the Fed or others the options that other nations have? Right. So it's, I would say it's the fact that the dollar is the safe haven currency. I think that's the biggest one. Uh, also, we rely a lot on foreign demand to hold on to these treasuries. The, the JGB market tends to be more domestically held. So, you know, if the BOJ owns it or some Japanese pension fund owns it, you know, there's not that much of a difference. With the U.S., we've got the, the dollar, which is the reserve asset. And I think there's really no competitor. I'm not saying that the dollar is the best uh, out there, but it's the best among every other option. So I think going into yield curve control, you run into credibility issues, political you know, lack of independence. I think you're really getting into hairy issues when you start looking at yield curve control further out. But I think even now, the market's not forcing their hand. So I think the problem, we're all grappling with a very grim message from the Fed, but they're not really doing anything new. And the market likes a new shiny tool, which is why negative rates, yield curve control, we tend to gravitate to those things. But rates are pretty low. So I think they'll use this if we start to, you know, if equities continue to go to the moon, at some point rates are going to start to rise, particularly in the long end. That's when I think they use the balance sheet to the fullest and just buy whatever it takes to keep rates low. Let's build on this because you're right to say the JGB market is not the treasury market. I wouldn't even call the JGB market a market anymore. Some of these securities hardly trade. The bulk of it is held at the Bank of Japan. But there are some people worried that that is the way the treasury market is going. doesn't mean it happens tomorrow, but over time, Priya. And I'm trying to understand just how much of this Federal Reserve, how much of this treasury market this Fed will actually hold. So, you know, they have been lowering the amount they're buying. Um, I think the aim, and they haven't been very explicit, 
they kept saying it's market functioning. Well, if it was only market functioning driving treasury buying, they should have stopped buying. I would say yep. a month ago. The fact that they are still buying is telling you that they're needed. But, you know, I see them. Well, a big question is how much more supply are we going to get? I think the U.S. Congress is going to do, you know, many more potentially fiscal stimulus plans. So we'll have a lot more supply. But I think the Fed will have to switch it from saying this is just market functioning to financial conditions. We need to keep rates low. In the long end, I think they might be 50% of the market in the near term. Wow. But remember, it, it, it's still the dollar is, is the reserve asset. It's just, you know, if I were to buy, the front end is very safe for me because the Fed's not about to hide. So I think it will vary across the yield curve. Priya, fantastic to get your thoughts this morning. Really important conversation. Enjoy the long weekend, won't you? And send our best to the family. Priya Misra there of TD Securities. We decided on Friday that it was incredibly important to find a daughter out there who properly celebrated her mother's 80th birthday, and that would be Diane Swank in the great Midwest of this nation. Diane, that was lovely, your celebration of Miss Phil, Phyllis Swank's birthday here. She, uh, she um, cried by the end of the day, so I succeeded in, <laughs> in bringing joy to her tears of joy. So that was good to be able to do in a way yeah. I didn't expect to originally. Yeah, Diane, to get a summary here of the economy and this troubled American economy that you never studied this at Michigan. It was never in the textbooks with uh, Professor Gramlich and the others at at Michigan. Frame for us where we are right now. We're in May. We're going to end May and June. That's Q2. Where are we right now? It's we're near the bottom, which is in some ways, you know, good in that we're sort of bottoming out. It's bad in that I fear we need to change the way we really talk about the economy. Um, we've gone to such a low bottom with so many extraordinary losses that when we talk about bouncing off that bottom as a dead rat bounce, because I'm really sensitive to cat lovers these days, um, I think it's important that we think so about... So am I. <laughs> yeah, it's important. Um, yeah, everyone I knows. cats in my cat, life. My kids huge are cat lover. Really to them, but I'm not a rat lover, but I did have white mice on an aside. Um, but I think it's really important how we talk about the economy in context. You know, we're two-thirds below traveling over this Memorial Day weekend where we were a year ago. Thinking of an economy that's two-thirds below where it was a year ago is stunning. And that's as mobility as we see cell phones travel more across state lines and people, you know, getting in their cars more to at least drive somewhere to maybe a national park. This is really important to understand in context that, you know, even as the economy reopens and we start to see percent increases out there, those will dramatically overstate the level of economic activity we're at. And that's what I'm very concerned about because it doesn't do justice to the pain that is the ongoing that we continue to suffer. And it really is starting to bring up a debate in economics about how to even talk about recessions because this one is just so incredibly unique. It may be short-lived if we don't get a double dip, which is highly possible with a second wave in the fall. But even as the economy recovers, the length of time it takes us to get back to our previous peak will be um, excruciatingly long. Diane, I want to build on this idea of a reopening economy, yet an ongoing uh, role of unemployment benefits. The idea that continuing claims rose more than expected in the data we got yesterday, and the fact that 39 million Americans have lost their jobs in nine weeks, with another two and a half million filing in the previous week. 
Does that tell you something that even now, after the immediate shutdowns have basically uh, been put through and are starting to rise and alleviate, that we're still seeing such massive job losses? Exactly. Well, some of it is lag because people were unable to get in, but we're not seeing the reopening trigger the kind of rehiring we'd like to see. And I think that's really important. The continuing claims is people finally getting paid that waited for a very long time. People really don't understand the lag in this. And it's going to take a much longer time. I mean, it's just the you know this pace and speed of which we've lost jobs and people thinking we can just turn that covid tainted spigot on again we don't want to drink from a, a tainted well and i think that's what we're dealing with right now and as we ramp up again we've seen that it, whether economies are open or not whether restaurants are open or not there is a hesitancy because of the fear of contagion and until we can deal with that issue the fundamental sense of being safe consumers are reluctant to consume as they did in the past. It's also important that a third of all spending in the economy is done by baby boomers who are the most at risk of getting severe um, consequences of the coronavirus. And I think that's very important as well as this big spending group who already is a little more skittish and reluctant to spend like they used to. This is the generation that defined conspicuous, inconspicuous consumption and defined debt. They took on debt more than any other generation previous to them. They are now banking the gains from refinancing their homes prior to the crisis. I worry about what they will do coming back. It's a lot of worries to think about, Diane. One of the things I'm tracking at the moment is just in terms of how the narrative is, is evolving on the economist profession side of things, which I'm sure you can speak to. I keep hearing more of a multi-speed, multi-stage recovery, that we get this quick reopening and this quick improvement off the back of going from quite clearly shut down to reopening. And then after several months, the gains fade. And then we have to go through this real slog of trying to improve the labor market. Is that how you see things evolving? A quick improvement and then a long slog after that? I'm not sure how much improvement. We'll get a quick speed of improvement in terms of percent changes off of, you know, if you divide by zero, you get infinity, and we're almost at zero in the economy when we put it into a deep freeze. So um, I do think there will be some pent-up demand that we see come out and, you know, some surge in activity from that, and that is good. The problem is recoveries tend to happen in waves, and can it be sustained? And what does the next side of this look like? Factories can reopen, but we've seen even in China – over 90% of all factories are reopened and people are, are in, but they're operating at 50% of capacity because world yeah. demand is so weak. So even the things that can reopen easily have hurdles in a global economy right. that's been hit by a meteor. Okay, I want to go through this exercise, uh, Ms. Swank, and I want to do it with great respect for your forecasting ability, all the awards you've won. And I understand nobody's listening on a Friday before Memorial Day, so it's just you and me, <laughs> Diane, with John and, and Lisa. So if I'm wrong, right nobody now, cares, because not that there's any pressure. Right 50% of the time. <laughs> take the quarter, annualize it out, and we're like at minus 38, minus 40% GDP yes. right now. Go yes. quarter by quarter forward how you perceive that. Like, do we go from minus 40 to minus 10 to zero. How do you model out the GDP yeah, path? It, it's, it's really difficult. So I know it is, I, but... Yeah, my, my forecast is up more like 7 to 8%, which is a very modest increase after yeah. such an extraordinary decline in the third quarter, and then a slowdown again in the fourth quarter as we deal with the second wave. But what's really hard is, starting July 1st, we have cuts in state and local government spending. Depends on transfers to the states, um, because that's a major hurdle to get over. We also have a much more sustained contraction in investment. We've already lost a year to trade wars in business okay, investment. Well, that's a 
the foundation going forward. So that's I mean, just, why my forecast is a little weaker than some others. Just because of time, Mitch McConnell says here, you know, round whatever it is for stimulus is going to be under a trillion dollars. He's nuts, right? It's not enough. No, not at all. And that's the unfortunate fact is as fast as we're still chasing a moving target. And to wait until late July, early August, that the unemployment yeah. insurance will have expired. And we'll I mean, still need expansions. I mean, John, I don't want to get in the editorial timeout chair here. Well, I think you've already econ- done that, to be honest <laughs> with you. But every economist agrees with Ms. Swank that, that no, we, we need a lot more money. I think Secretary yes. Mnuchin is quickly coming around to that idea, Tom. And I think Secretary Mnuchin himself has done a tremendous job of bringing the whole of Washington along with him. I yeah. agree with you that things have really slowed down in the last couple of weeks. I'd be very surprised to see the Treasury Secretary back away from more fiscal stimulus with an economy yeah. in the shape that it's in, in an election year. I'd be really surprised to see that happen. Yeah. Diane Swank, thank you so much for joining us with Grant Thornton. Just an important voice for us, particularly on our Fed Day coverage. He is at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, Johns Hopkins University, and of course, Michael Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP and this radio and television uh, platform as well, has provided great philanthropy to his Johns Hopkins at university where he had darkened the door in engineering uh, years ago. Andrew Pekosh is there. He is a virologist world-known for the social and health impacts of our virology and microbiology. And I spoke to him about the medical community and their exhaustion. The pandemic itself has been such a focus of the medical community um, and of people. Um, But we have to remember that there are other things that are going on, other health care issues that need to be taken care of. Uh, Some reports this week about drops in pediatric vaccination rates um, are, of course, a concern because things that are not getting done now will have implications later on in the year, maybe next year and the year afterwards. How serious is Brazil? I looked at the log glide path yesterday per capita, the wonderful work that the FT has been doing with Johns Hopkins University, and the glide paths of Brazil and Ecuador are really, really grim. Yes. Uh, you know, the southern hemisphere is now getting into its late fall, early winter season, so uh, there's been concerns about whether or not uh, the COVID-19 virus would do better in cooler conditions and winter-like conditions. Brazil and Ecuador are having uh, tremendous trouble in terms of controlling the outbreak with huge numbers of cases. Uh, other countries in the southern hemisphere have been able to control that with very, very rigid and active surveillance for the virus and testing for the virus. Uh, but. Uh, several countries in South America um, are a concern, and the emerging problem in Africa is also uh, of con- some concern. Dr. Pekos, are there are enough testing kits in emerging market economies, or is that, is that a worry that we actually don't exactly know what's going on? Yeah, I think the number one worrying in those uh, countries is the number of tests, and then uh, right behind that is uh, the availability of good laboratories that can run those tests in a timely manner. So those two things combined are going to make it incredibly challenging for uh, some countries to really respond well in terms of the uh, uh, testing, um, isolation, and contact tracing that are needed to control this um, uh, outbreak early. 
Andrew, what can you tell us about you know, the end of the lockdown? So we're seeing a number of economies, the biggest economies in the world, reopening, some slowly, some less slowly. But given the time lag of people ending up in hospital, when will we have a better idea of, of the exact situation? Uh, and this is one of the challenges with this virus because it takes about, it can take anywhere from one to two weeks to show symptoms and you're infectious for about probably seven days. Um, the lag between when cases start to come up um, is significant. Um, you're seeing some small spikes in, in particularly in states in the U.S. that are uh, loosening their economy. Mm -hmm. uh, some other states are doing a little bit better right now, but we really won't know until two to three weeks from now um, how these states are doing with loosening their All public right. health interventions. Dr. Pekos, one final question. I don't mean to be uh, trite about it, but I think it's an immediate question. How safe will the beaches be this weekend? What are your thoughts on heading to the beach? Well, you know, it, as, as economies open up as some of these uh, uh, social distancing, uh, well, I should say social distancing should still be in place. So people need to really be careful about keeping their distance among people when they're outside. It's great to get outside, to do some activities, uh, to try to enjoy yourself during these times. But social distancing and wearing masks is going to be an incredibly important thing to do, irrespective of what your activity is. I know it seems a little bit odd uh, to say that on a beach and stuff, but... Uh, Maintaining social distancing is the critical thing as people try to get out and, uh, you know, and, and get back into some sense of normalcy. Andrew Peckhoff at Johns Hopkins University, just always wonderful. We really thank the whole team at JHU for their support uh, through uh, the week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.